Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for all that you have provided for us, all that you've given us spiritually, a complete salvation, as well as the provision of God the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells us, but who also fills us with your word that we may be able to grow and mature spiritually and that we may be able to glorify you and that we may be able to understand your word, put it into practice. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would make these things clear to us, help us think through what you have revealed to us and why you have revealed these things to us and the significance that they play in our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and we are uh, zeroing in on the final part of Solomon's life. In fact, tonight we will more than likely finish uh, finish up with Solomon's reign and have a little time left over to go back and review and just uh, pull all of this together. Now, 1 Kings 11 is the downturn in Solomon's reign. As I've said before, and we'll get into some of the details of the chronology a little bit as we go through this, it probably occurs during the last half of his reign. He ascended the throne when he was approximately 20 He reigned for 40 years. During the first 20 years, he is in his greatest building project period when he builds uh, his palace. He builds the temple, dedicates the temple. This is the time period of his spiritual ascendancy. It's the period when God is blessing him above and beyond anything that uh, Solomon had asked. When we think about Solomon's life, there are... Uh, two key events that everything should rotate around as we sort of capture it. And as I try to provide some summary tonight, and one reason I do this is for prep school teachers who can come back and listen to lessons like this, and it will help them focus on the kind of things that they can uh, teach because they're not going to spend 35 hours teaching on uh, Solomon. They'll reduce it to something much less than that. But... Uh, we look at these two events, and they relate to the first appearance of God to Solomon in chapter 3 and the second appearance 
of God to Solomon in chapter 9. And it is at that first appearance, at the time when he first uh, takes the throne, that God tells him to ask for whatever he would ask. And he asked for wisdom. And God said, because you have asked for wisdom and you haven't, haven't asked for military power, you haven't asked for riches and wealth, you haven't asked for all of these other things, God said, I will give those to you as well. And so God richly blesses Solomon, uh, not only because of that event, but because the, the whole relationship that God has that's grounded with Solomon is grounded in that legal contract that God made with David. And so because of David, because of David's faithfulness to God, uh, God is uh, blessing Solomon as that promised seed in terms of the immediate descendant of the uh, Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So that's the first key event. So all this blessing and prosperity uh, really reaches a crescendo through these chapters, and it reaches its apex in chapter 10, which we went through when the Queen of Sheba comes, and in that chapter it describes all of the vast wealth, all of the uh, expansive trade of Israel. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal to sit down with a map and think about their territorial expansion, but also the trade that is going on in this, this uh, uh, alliance with uh, Hiram uh, of Tyre, who uh, and the Phoenicians and how they mastered, uh, controlled the seas, they controlled the Mediterranean. The Med, the Med was basically a Phoenician lake, and the Phoenicians controlled all the trade that took place uh, on the water. And Israel, because of its position, as I pointed out, Solomon uh, controlled all the trade on the land because all the great uh, uh, caravan uh, routes that went from Africa up to the Hittite Empire and what's modern Turkey up to uh, Greece, all the way east into the Persian area. All those highways all had a major junction in Israel. And so God blesses and brings this incredible prosperity to Solomon. Now, it's interesting. We'll get into this as we get into the tax revolt later on. What's interesting is there's this tremendous blessing of God. The blessing of God for Israel, all this tremendous wealth, doesn't come because Solomon taxed the people. Keep that in mind. What happens in the next chapter, when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes a king, and he uh, goes to his advisors because he needs to increase the taxes on the people in order to continue their, uh, you know, the, the, the whole appearance of prosperity that they have. And for years I've thought about that, and I thought, you know, there's something wrong with this whole idea because when Jeroboam, who leads this revolt against him, comes to Rehoboam, and pleads with him to reduce the taxes. The idea there is the taxes are already onerous from Solomon. But God didn't bless and didn't build Solomon's empire on the backs of the people in terms of egregious taxes. That's not how it works. So what that tells me is that when Solomon entered into his 
period of, of carnality when he's rejecting God as he goes through this time of spiritual regression, God ceases the, bless, the material blessing on Israel. You go back and you read the Mosaic Law, it's very clear in the passages in Deuteronomy 28 to 30 and Leviticus 26 that God is using material blessing for the people as a very concrete physical barometer of their spiritual uh, success. If you're spiritual, God says, I'm going to bless you and there will be abundance in the land and, and uh, there will be abundant crops and rain and all this. And if you disobey, then there won't be rain. There will be a drought. There will be all of these economic catastrophes. The, uh, there will be various uh, uh, blights on the crops, and you won't have production and all these things. So it's their spirituality is the cause, the ultimate causation in history of their, of their, of their economic success and their military success and disobedience to God is the other thing. And that's, that's really the key element we see developed all the way through Kings, first and second Kings, is that history moves not simply according to a system of economic or military or political laws that operate within a closed system. And see, we live in a world today, ever since the Enlightenment, where men have tried to quantify what the mechanics are for uh, national success and economic success. And it leaves out that one incredible intangible that is the ultimate causation for everything, and that's the spiritual factor. And so no matter who you read on economics, when they're dealing with macroeconomic theory and they're dealing with uh, how nations rise and fall and all these things, they never treat the key element which the scriptures reveal, which has to do with their spiritual relationship and their relationship with God. And that's just as true for us today. What's going on in terms of the economic malaise in our, our country and in the West because uh, Europe is going through this same thing. Just see how it, it, it reveals itself politically. Russia uh, invades Georgia last week. They didn't get as far as Birmingham, Alabama, but they did make it to Georgia. They invaded Georgia last week, and the, the, the Western Europeans basically don't say anything because they're, they've sold out already to the idol of financial success and material prosperity, and that's fueled by Russian fuel that's being brought in across Georgia with one pipeline that's down there, but much of the fuel to get natural gas and oil comes from, comes from Russia. So they don't want to say anything because if they oppose Russia, what, what if Russia turns off the, the gas hose and they don't get uh, oil or gas? But if you notice, two of the nations that did stand up and offered to uh, uh, be a location for missiles and other things were the Ukraine and Poland and the Baltic states because they were part of the former Soviet Union. They understand how tyrannical the Russian bear is, and so they haven't sold out yet to materialism, prosperity, and the facade of success, even though the core is no longer there because the core that brought success in uh, Western Europe and the United States is built on that 
uh, Christian base. So this is this gives you an, uh, an ability to think through and analyze what's going on, what's going on in history. Well, the same thing is happening with with Israel under Solomon, because in Solomon's latter years, God is going to be true to the Mosaic law, and He is going to indict and judge the people and Solomon on the basis of the law. And we see that that's the structure of chapter 11 is this indictment uh, that God brings against Solomon, the first part of the chapter, uh, as he uh, as he indicts him for his uh, polytheism, for his rejection of God, his violation of the law, which is exemplified in his multiple marriages, his internationalism, multiculturalism, and all the other things that went with that. And then God gives the penalty. He indicts him first, gives the penalty then, uh, starting in verse verse 11. But the people, if God is true to the Mosaic Covenant, the people have already gone through a level of economic decline, and whether it's recession or depression or how you want to, we, we, we can't really impose those terms on this, but such that Solomon tried to maintain the illusion of divine blessing by ta- increasing the taxes on the people. See, God had blessed him, and all this tremendous prosperity developed in Israel, which is what the Queen of Sheba saw, what's described in chapter 10. But after, but that did not come through heavy taxation. But by the end of chapter 11, as we get into chapter 12, we realize that, that Solomon's been trying to maintain that facade of wealth on the basis of taxing the people because the real basis for it is no longer there because of his spiritual apostasy, and he's led the people. No, Solomon wasn't the only one who was worshiping these uh, false gods from the surrounding nations. He has led the people. He's authorized it. He's legitimized it. He has validated it by supporting all of these different uh, religious systems. And so the nation is collapsing and beginning to collapse internally, and it will indeed fragment as a result of divine discipline. And if you did, we didn't have the divine commentary here telling us why they fragmented. You can imagine, and you do have this, by the way, when you get with various liberal neo-orthodox Bible uh, student Bible scholars, they try to argue this totally within natural causation. And see, especially the liberals, this is the result of the fact that they didn't take care of the poor and they didn't take care of the hungry and, you know, all this other uh, nonsense that you get. Like if you listen to the Rick Warren interview the other night with the two presidential candidates, uh, I thought he did a fairly good job, despite the fact that he's got poor theology and poor ecclesiology. He did a much better job than most of the professional news people do who are supposed to handle these debates. And he asked good questions that really exposed what the candidates were saying, but you had a typical uh, Marxist, liberal, liberation theology type of interpretation of Matthew 25 by uh, Barack Obama, where he says the, the scripture that means the most to him is the one uh, related to that if you feed the poor, feed the hungry, uh, take care of the poor, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And he applies that with a social agenda that 
the church, that the government is supposed to take care of the poor. This is a Christian view. And that's just garbage. You have to read the context. The context of Matthew 25 is talking about Jews. That's what Jesus means by whatever you did to these, my brethren. He's talking about regenerate Jews and how regenerate Jews were treated in the tribulation period. And those who were anti-Semitic are judged, and those who were not, and the reason they're not anti-Semitic in the tribulation period is because they're, they're believers. And so those, and that's the separation, uh, relates to the separation of the sheep and the goat judgment. All that's tied together in there, but it's just a typical, uh, co-opting of scripture to fit within somebody's liberal Marxist, Leninist interpretation of history. But once you get away from any understanding of true hermeneutics, authorial intent, and the single meaning of the text, you you can just make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. But the Bible is very clear, and it's very precise. And you get into 1 Kings 11, as we have, we see this structure. God finally lowers the boom on Solomon, and he is going to bring the discipline home but for the sake of David, twice he says, for the sake of your father David, verse 12, and for the sake of my servant David, verse 13, it's not going to reach its, its uh, fragmentation period under Solomon. He will uh, get, wait until after Solomon has died. But then we saw last time that in this section, in this section from verse 14 down to verse 43, God is going to raise up three adversaries, to Solomon, two externally and one internally. Now, last time we only looked at the at the one uh, one externally, and this is Hadad the Edomite, and he comes from Edom. And as you can tell from the map, Edom is is located to the southeast of the Dead Sea. This is the area down around uh, Petra, the area, all other cities, also uh, Basra. And then the second one, which we'll look at briefly tonight, little is said about him in the Scripture, even less is known about him from outside the Scripture. And the only mention is really here, and this is Rezin. Uh, well, Rezin, the, and that shouldn't be Edomite. I didn't get that changed. That should be Rezin the, uh, from Zoba. And he takes over, established as a um, kingdom in Syria. And these are external. And there's never any warfare that breaks out between Ezra, or Hadad and Solomon, but they are antagonistic. And so the edges of the empire begin to uh, fragment, and it it is a foreshadowing of, of what will come. But the real problem comes with this uh, third enemy, and that's the internal enemy, who is uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. Jeroboam is from uh, the tribe of Ephraim in the north, and he's the one God is going to use to to uh, be the focal point, the leader in this division that will come. Now, as I pointed out last time, when God disciplines us, he can either uh, discipline us to the full extent of uh, punishment or the sin. He can, he can minimize it to some deg- one degree or another, or he can not punish us according to his grace. Many times he he does not. Often he uses the natural cause and effect, uh, you know, otherwise known as the chickens come home to roost idea, that the normal cause and effect where we make certain 
sinful decisions, and as a res- the natural result is certain things happen, and that's what takes place here. If Solomon had been obedient, I believe that neither um, Hadad nor Rezin would have been raised up as adversaries. They would have been dealt with. It would have been a different scenario in history. And if Solomon had been obedient to God, uh, Jeroboam would not have been, uh, God would not have allowed Jeroboam to create this division. The nation would have been blessed and continued as a united kingdom. But for disciplinary reasons, God allows them uh, to carry on this adversarial role. And it also shows and reveals to us the process that God uses in divine discipline as we pursue a path of negative volition and disobedience and rebellion. What God does is the same thing we see in Romans 1 is he sort of pulls back the restraints. Well, that's what you want to do. Okay, well, I'll just give you enough rope to hang yourself. You want to keep wanting to go that way? Okay, I'm just going to give you a little more rope. And eventually we keep pushing our independence and our autonomy and our sinful rebellion to the point that it completely blows up in our face and destroys our life and or the life of a nation. And so this is what we see here. Now, last time we looked at this, this Hadad the Edomite. And so tonight we're going to start with uh, the rise of, of uh, resin, which takes place in verse 23. God raised up another adversary. The word I pointed out last time for adversary is shatan, which is the same word used for the name Satan. It is an antagonist or an adversary, someone who opposes the work and production of someone else. And God raises up another adversary against him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, had Adezer, the king of Zobah. Now, there's not a lot said about any of these people or Zobah in the scriptures, and so there's little that we can do to flesh this out. But there is a discussion in one place and that's the same chapter we looked at last time in relationship to Hadad, and that's in First uh, Samuel, uh, I mean Second Samuel chapter eight. Second Samuel chapter eight, which describes the uh, conquests of David as God blesses him and he consolidates the empire. Last time we pointed out that in the midst of this, there's a huge battle that takes place down by the Dead Sea with. Uh, against the Edomites, and uh, Joab stays down there, and Joab exercises his his sin nature and uh, exercises his cruelty among the Edomites and uh, kills all of their men of military uh, military age. Uh, This is described here if we look at 2 Samuel 8, verses 3 through 5. Uh, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Now, we'll look at this map here because it shows us a little more of the, of the terrain. The area in green, this is really a picture of the divided kingdom, the area in green depicting the southern kingdom, the area in purple depicting the northern kingdom, but the area to the upper right, to the northeast of the purple area, is the area of Aram, 
the king of Aram up there. You have Damascus is located uh, right up here. And then just off the uh, top right corner of this particular map, you would have the upper reaches of the Euphrates River. And under Solomon and David, the kingdom of Israel extended that far. These were uh, vassal states. They weren't uh, completely under the control of Israel, but they became vassal states. But, of course, there's a problem here because the people want to throw off the yoke of, uh, of Solomon and of Israel. And this area up here uh, to the north of Damascus, this area up in here is the area of Zobah. And it was a, a province or kingdom which uh, extended across to, this is Lebanon over here along the coast, and so it's this area uh, right in here that we're uh, that we're talking about. So David, both Saul had uh, fought with the kings of Zobah, according to 1 Samuel 14:47, and David uh, defeated them in, here in 2 Samuel chapter uh, chapter 8. We read in verse go on reading on in verse 4. David took from him. When he conquered uh, Hadadezer, he took from him a thousand chariots. That's a sizable army. This is a tremendous military defeat. He took a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. So this is a major battle, a major military defeat, a major conquest. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough for, uh, of them for 100 chariots. See, you have to understand that the whole military doctrine of disarmament extends all the way back into the ancient world. The Philistines practiced disarmament when they uh, wouldn't allow a blacksmith to operate in Israel. The Philistines had iron weapons. The Israelites had bronze weapons, iron trumps, uh, bronze all the time. So the Philistines would not allow the Israelites to have the latest weapon technology at their disposal to protect themselves, and that's so they can easily be overrun, and this is how tyrants always operate. It amazes me that we continue to have this battle over uh, personal ownership of firearms and concealed carry permits. I just love the fact that Texas takes the lead as usual in things like this, and we have some guy with a lot of chutzpah uh, up in uh, North Texas, this school district that has authorized their um, their teachers that if they have the proper training to have a concealed carry permit, plus go through additional handgun training, that if they pass all the qualifications of the school board, then they can have concealed carry in their classroom. Of course, the liberal, anti-American, anti-constitutional American Federation of Teachers and the local Houston branch is all up in arms on this. And if you watch the morning news, then um, uh, the director has been online. And this morning she said, I just couldn't believe it. In fact, I sent her an email. Uh, she said that she's been a, in the teaching profession all of her life, and she doesn't know any teachers, any teachers, who if, if something like a Columbine or, or what happened in Virginia 
uh, East Virginia uh, Tech. But something like that happened on their campus. Teachers loved their, their students so much. She didn't know a single teacher who could actually shoot a student. So I emailed her and I said, well, that tells me that you don't know any teachers who really love the other students because they would rather let this one student murder 10, 15, 20 or more students than do what is necessary to stop the one student. And you, you just have your priorities all backwards. You're so concerned about the criminal that you don't want to protect the innocent and the victims. And that's probably why the American Federation of Teachers has destroyed the teaching system. I had to put that in there. <laughs> but that's a point. We, we constantly, constantly have uh, people who put their eye on the wrong ball. And they don't want to allow the citizenry to protect themselves. And so this whole process of disarmament goes way back. That's what David's doing. He's going to disarm the enemy here, and the victor always has the right to do that. We go on to read in verse 5, When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. You know, this is authorized by God. War and killing the enemy is not something that uh, Christians and Bible believers should shy from. It's not something that you go out and embrace and uh, instigate, but when the time is right, it's necessary to fight and it's necessary to uh, kill the enemy. Uh, verse 6, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David uh, wherever he went, and David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And then we read another mention of Hadadezer down in verse uh, 11 and 12. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And so this is the background for what happens in First uh, Kings chapter 11. So now let's turn back and look at First Kings chapter 11. So David has defeated them, and there are always those after a military defeat who harbor bitterness and hatred uh, for whoever defeated them. And in some cases that's a good thing, in some cases it's not. But in this case, you have the uh, circumstance uh, with, uh, with Rezin, and so he has put together a band of mercenaries, that he, and he uses them to retake uh, the throne and reestablish the throne and reestablish a kingdom in Damascus. This is 1 Kings 11.24. So he gathered men to him, somewhat reminiscent of David and David's band of mighty men, also reminiscent of Jephthah back in the Judges period. He gathered men to him, became a captain over a band of uh, uh, raiders and mercenaries when uh, David killed those of Ziba. And they went to Damascus, dwelt there, and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon. So, uh, but we're not told about this to the end period, and I think that as we look at the chronology here, that these guys don't really develop any traction until 
And God doesn't allow them to develop any traction until the last period of Solomon's life when Solomon goes into apostasy. So these are the first two that are on the outside. Then we get the internal enemy starting in verse 26. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow also rebelled against the king. Now, this is a topical sentence. It is describing and introducing us to what happens in this rebellion under uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He is from the tribe of Ephraim, and the tribe of Ephraim, uh, we'll go back to this particular map, we see in the center of Israel here the yellow section is the uh, land that was allotted to Ephraim. Now, just as a side note, because this will play an important role in Jeroboam's uh, life, you see here just uh, in the Shephelah area, which is the coastal plain uh, along where Joppa is, this is uh, where Tel Aviv is located. Uh, Tel Aviv is pretty much surrounded the old port of Joppa, which is where uh, um, Jonah hopped a boat to get away from uh, God's uh, command to go to the Assyrians. It's also where uh, Peter was staying at Simon the Tanner's house when um, when he had a vision and God was telling him to go to a small port north of there. Uh, there was a major Gentile city, Caesarea by the sea. Uh, so Joppa plays an important role. This is the territory of Dan. But Dan never could conquer it during the conquest or the period of the Judges. And so at the end of Judges, in chapter uh, 17 and 18, describes their migration. They sent out some spies to see if they could find any wimps anywhere that they could defeat so they could take over a piece of territory that wasn't there. So they're already in disobedience to God. That's why they couldn't defeat the enemy. So Dan's an apostate tribe. So they headed off, and they go. They send these spies out, and they go into the area of Ephraim, and they pick up an apostate uh, priest in Ephraim. So Ephraim is also known as an area of and a tribe of apostasy, and their name is often associated with idolatry, as is Dan. Now, why did I spend all that time there? Because just to give you a little framework since we're here, when we get into, on Sunday morning, when we get into the uh, list of the 12, the 144,000 from the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes in Israel, Ephraim's name isn't there and Dan's name isn't there. Why? Because these two tribes are associated with idolatry throughout Israel's history and specifically this period of time. So this just gives you a little background, a little framework for understanding that. Dan's going to end up migrating all the way up here to the north. You see right here this little, it has Dan located up here to the north. They moved up here and established an apostate worship center and set up a, uh, 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 an idolatrous golden calf even during the, and, and a false worship under Gershom, the grandson of Moses, during the time of the, of the judges when they're into uh, spiritual and moral uh, relativism. So that's, that's this area up here in the north. So that's Dan and Ephraim, and there's this connection there, and they pick up the apostate priest from a, a guy in Ephraim. So these tribes are connected that way. So when we hear Ephraim and Dan, Ephraim's a major tribe just to the north of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem. If you see the arrow pointing right there at the tip of the arrow, 
Right here is Jerusalem, right on the edge of the green, which is Judah, and the purple here, which is Benjamin. And as you go north, Ephraim's here. And right here you have Shiloh. And Shiloh is the location where the uh, they have had the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. This is where Samuel uh, ministered as a young boy and later as priest before the Lord at the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was uh, during the time when Eli was the corrupt apostate high priest. And uh, so Shiloh has a tremendous heritage. Uh, Ephraim is the tribe of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he, it is also uh, the location and the hometown in Shiloh of this prophet that's going to come on the scene named Ahijah. So Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruach, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Notice all the chronology, all the genealogy there is designed to show us that this is not some sort of legend or myth, but to locate him in a space-time situation with a family that could be traced out in Jewish genealogies. Verse 27, this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Interesting passage. Why is he going to rebel against, uh, against, uh, against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. Now, that seems pretty innocuous, but it's the way in which Solomon does this. And this is done after, if you look at 1 Kings 9, and compare this, we don't have a tight chronology given us in the scripture, but it appears that he, Solomon doesn't build the, the Milo and repair this damage to the city of David until after he completes the, um, the temple and the palace. And so this is after the dedication of the temple and the last part of his life. So here we, I have a map that gives you an idea. Uh, there's nothing really the scale, but it's not more than five miles from the top of that map to the bottom of that map. It's probably even less than that. It's not The old city of David is not very large. It, it really surprises people when they go to Israel the first time, you're standing up on the Mount of Olives, and you say, see that little area down there? That's, that's the city of David. It's just it, it's, it's, uh, very small. And I have a couple of other pictures here that will help you get an idea of it. But this area here... This was the temple complex here. And then this area just to the south of it is called the Ophel. This is where uh, they had a number of, um, and they've just uncovered a bunch of these. These were buildings that were related to the uh, government and the bureaucracy uh, and the running of, of uh, Israel at that time. And then this area here just to the left was called the Milo. And apparently, there was a ravine or a gulch or there, the, the land, the terrain dropped there. And so it was a difficult area to defend because as the wall came up uh, along the uh, west side here, it would have had to go make this dip. And so what Solomon does is he, he brings in all of this earth, builds it up, raises the level of the wall so it's a more uh, defensible uh, fortification. This next slide gives you another artist's depiction of the city of, at, of Jerusalem at the time of David. See the area of the temple up here 
is the area where you uh, don't have a temple. It's the threshing floor of, uh, of a rune of the um, uh, Jebusite. Here would be the area of the temple. The area right in here would be the area of the Milo, and then this area over here to the right would be the area of the Ophel. Uh, this slide is a depiction of how Jerusalem grew during the t- time of the later kings. You see how the city is expanding across the Tyropean Valley. This is looking from the east to the west. And so we have the temple here on the top. We have the palace and the uh, Ophel is built up. And the, I mean, the Ophel is this area here and then the uh, Milo would have been on the, on the other side. Now, if you're looking at it from a modern picture today, this is a picture uh, from the south. And the area enclosed in the red lines is the area of the old city of David. And the area at the top, you see the gold dome of the uh, Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock. You see just a little bit to the right of it, the the gray dome, which is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And you see the walls around the uh, Temple Mount. These walls were built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 16th century, so they're in approximately the same place. And some of these stones go back to uh, uh, the time of Herod because they, they, they rebuilt them. They used the same stones to uh, uncover that. And the area of the uh, Ophel is this area right over here, and they've excavated that. As you walk by on the street, you can see uh, all the foundations there. And so the Milo would have been located in this area here, which, of course, has all been uh, filled in now. So that gives you a little bit of a visual perspective of this this area. So this was a large uh, construction project that uh, Solomon was engaged in, and he brings in labor from the north, from the northern kingdom, from the uh, tribe of Joseph. Joseph is often used as a name representing the northern tribes. He had two sons, remember, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so uh, Ephraim, often Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh are used to describe the, the northern area. When we get into the Revelation 12 list of the tribes of Israel, Joseph's name replaces Ephraim. Manasseh, there's Menasheh, is there. Uh, Ephraim is not there. Dan is not there. Joseph replaces uh, Ephraim because Ephraim's name has these connotations with, uh, with idolatry. So there's this competition though, among the tribes that's developed, and Joseph, uh, the tribe of Judah seems to be getting all this recognition, all this blessing from God, and David and Solomon showed a lot of favoritism, which is wrong, showed a lot of favoritism to Judah, didn't tax Judah, didn't uh, impose certain uh, financial uh, obligations on Judah like they did the other tribes. And so a, a rivalry and bitterness had sprung up between the, some of the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah. So just that's just for background. So Verse 28, we read, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man. Now, a mighty man of valor is a Hebrew term, uh, Hayil Gabor. And that is often used to describe someone who is a mighty warrior, someone who's a good combat soldier, somebody who is a uh, valiant in combat. 
but it's also used in some contexts to refer to someone who is a man of influence and a man of power. Uh, you, you'd use that word to describe someone who is an industrial uh, giant, a captain of industry, someone who has accomplished a lot. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he was a warrior. It means he was a man who accomplished a lot. He was strong. He was industrious. The uh, text says it translates the word, and the word there is malaka, which is a word that's related to labor, and it's related to workmen, and it indicates someone who is skilled at getting the job done. So he was uh, someone who could get things done. He could oversee and manage people. He could get. He was good at getting all the resources together that you needed to accomplish the task. And so he set uh, Solomon sets him over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. He's from Ephraim, so he's one of them. He can. Uh, he knows their strengths, their weaknesses. He knows who the key people are. This isn't slave labor. This is just a labor force that has been uh, impounded from the north in order to, and that didn't make him real happy, in order to complete these projects. So we already see the breakdown in uh, the kingdom. Verse 29, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite, see he's from Shiloh, the Shilonite met him on the way. So Jeroboam isn't looking to lead a rebellion. He is not a uh, Lenin or a Stalin. He's not a Hitler. He is not trying to overthrow the government. That's not his intent. He's just going about his job, and God has a different plan for him and sends Ahijah, who is a prophet. There are two remarkable prophecies from Ahijah that are given in 1 Kings. Now, let's go back to that legal legal uh, uh, frame of reference that we have. Ahijah functions like a prosecutor. Prophets function like a prosecutor. And so God sends Ahijah because Ahijah, as a court officer from the heavenly court, is going to oversee the execution of the divine sentence that was announced on Solomon earlier in the chapter. So Ahijah comes up to Jeroboam meets him on the way, and Ahijah had clothed himself with a new garment, indicating Israel's a new nation. It's young. It's a new garment, and, and the two are alone in a field, no other witnesses. And Ahijah takes hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces. He uses the same verb that's used when God spoke to Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. Same word that Solomon, uh, Samuel used. When he told Solomon, uh, told Saul that God was going to tear the kingdom from him and told David that God was going to tear the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. So this is a picturesque word used not to, to depict violence, but to depict something that is permanent, something that is uh, permanently separated. So Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, tore it into 12 pieces, indicating this, uh, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. He said to Jeroboam, verse 31, take for yourself ten pieces. So you're going to get ten of the tribes. Uh, be, and for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. That would be uh, Judah plus Benjamin. Notice here there's two tribes because there's two pieces. 
Everywhere else we referred to them as one tribe because Benjamin was very small and had basically uh, intermarried and assimilated with Judah. So uh, they, they had just basically become, for all practical purposes, one tribe and one territory. Um, verse 32, verse 33, gives, uh, Hydra gives the reason, because they have forsaken me, violated that loyalty oath of the king to God as the ultimate king of Israel. So it's a matter of treason at the highest level to worship other gods because the first commandment in the Ten Commandments was thou shalt have no other gods uh, before me. And so Solomon, unlike David, David, even though he had many sins, was loyal to God and never got involved in idolatry. But Solomon has not only gotten involved in idolatry, he's promoted it, validated it, and, uh, uh, and it's grown and it's influenced the people. So Ahijah says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. All of these are the national gods indicating this internationalism on Solomon's part and his desire to, to uh, uh, find security through a marital, marriage alliances rather than through God. And then they have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and have kept my statutes and, and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. Now, if you read through, uh, through, through Deuteronomy, again and again and again, uh, the, the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, tells the people again and again that God says, you have to keep my statutes and my ordinances and walk in my way. So this is legal terminology right out of the Mosaic law. And it's, it's the execution of the penalty for violating the law. And he's clearly stating this is what the law said, and because they don't do it, this is the penalty that's being enacted as per Deuteronomy 28 to 30 and Leviticus 26. Verse 34, However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of, his servant, of my servant David. So there's grace even in the midst of judgment. He does, God doesn't bring discipline to the fullest extent that he could according to the law. There is grace from God even in the midst of the divine discipline. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will, verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And verse 36, and to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. Now, a lamp can be a figure of illumination, but uh, as per the, the word, thy law is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 focusing on illumination. But like most of you here, when I left my house tonight, I left some lights on so it looked like somebody was there. See, we also have lights in a house indicating the presence of somebody. And so that's the idea here in this imagery that there would always be a Davidic ruler in Jerusalem, and that's based on the Davidic covenant. So that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. In other words, always have a descendant there. It's a figure of speech where lamp is used in place of descendant to indicate presence. 
Uh, and Jerusalem, again, he says, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. This, again, reinforces the doctrine of the primacy of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's city because he put his name there. This is where God dwelt when he um, when he established the temple, when the temple was placed there. This is where Jesus was during his ministry. Jerusalem is God's city now and forever. Jerusalem is a city that is near and dear to God, as the scriptures indicate. Uh, verse 37, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires. Notice the free reign he is given and the freedom that he is given. You shall be king over all Israel. And then God gives them this incredible conditional promise in verse 38. Then it shall be, if you heed, circle that word, if, if you heed all that I command you. This is like the conditional promise God gave to Solomon. The Davidic covenant was not conditional. There's no if clause there. But you have an if clause with Solomon, which Solomon disobeyed, so the Messiah doesn't come through the Solomon line. It comes through the Nathan line. Uh, verse 36, I mean, um, uh, excuse me, verse 38. If you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight. Again, that is verbiage that comes right out of the Mosaic, Mosaic law. If you walk as... A leader should walk according to the law. Does that mean sinless and perfect? No. Remember, he said David was a man after God's own heart. David kept God's statutes and ordinance and walked after him. He didn't go into idolatry. That's the breach. That's where evil comes in is when we uh, put something else and worship something else over against God and replace God uh, in terms of our ultimate loyalty. You can be carnal. You can be... Uh, into all kinds of apostasy and not reject God. A lot of Christians do that. We know we're rebellious and we know God's going to get us, but God is, we're not disloyal to God ultimately. We may be disobedient, but we haven't, uh, rejected God. And that's the difference between David and Solomon. Solomon rejects God and goes into idolatry. Uh, so if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house. A dynasty. This is terminology just like we have in the Davidic covenant. Conditioned on Jeroboam's obedience. So God would have blessed him richly and created a second a path, a second dynasty in Israel. That, If that had worked out, that would have been quite confusing. God and his omniscience knew it wouldn't. But it's possible, and, he, and if Jeroboam had been obedient, then God would have had a way to have uh, completed this as well without violating his promise to David. He said, if um, you do all this as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. Verse 39, and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. That, that is, this sets the pattern for Israel's future. They will go under divine discipline again and again and again, all the different stages of divine discipline until they get to the fifth stage of the fifth cycle when they're removed from the land, the northern kingdom in 722 BC, the southern kingdom in 586 BC, and that's what Kings is all about is showing how God was faithful to his law 
God dealt faithfully with Israel, but Israel was unfaithful to God, and how God brought about all of the penalties in Leviticus 26, taking them out of the land, because when we get to the end of 2 Kings, Israel is out of the land. So there's the promise. Now, Solomon, who has a very good CIA type of organization, he had, uh, I guess, the original Mossad, which simply means the organization, uh, operating at that time. So it wasn't long before Solomon heard about Ahijah's promise to Jeroboam. So uh, Solomon, indicating his carnality, therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. Now, there must have been quite a crowd down there in Egypt because had a, uh, uh, what's his name, Hadadezer's down there, or Hadad is down there, and um, he goes to Shishak. Now, Shishak isn't the same Pharaoh that we had earlier that was the uh, one who gave his daughter to Solomon and his sister to Hadad. But he is the could be the son or a relative. He's the next king of Egypt. There's a lot of debate over who Shishak is. And um, uh, most traditional Egyptologists would, def- would say that he is Ram- Ramses II. But um, I doubt that. There are problems with Egyptian chronology, which I'm not going to go into. But we don't really know who Shishak is. Uh, so he flees to Shishak. And he is in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And then in verse 41, we have the conclusion and summary and the divine report card on Solomon's life. Now, this is important because this Solomon would have not have thought of his life this way. But this is God's report card, God's final evaluation report, not Solomon's. And all through kings, we're going to see this at the end of each ruler, whether it's the northern kingdom or southern kingdom, there's going to be a divine evaluation. They might have had a good economy. They might have had a strong military. They might have had a great building program. But nothing matters other than how God uh, evaluates your life, no matter what else you accomplish. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? So this tells us that the author and the people at the time that he wrote this had access to other historical accounts and documentation on the life of Solomon. And all through Kings, we're going to see references to these extra-biblical historical uh, accounts and chronicles that the writers refer to. So this tells us that even in the process of inspiration, the writers did their research, just as Luke does in the New Testament, and does their research and documents their their data and shows that, look, this isn't just some sort of myth. You can go read about this in other history books in the library. Verse 42, And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then, verse 43, Solomon rested with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. And so what we get at the end of Solomon's life is this divine indictment back in verse 6 of chapter 11. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did 
his father David. So his reign ends in a failure uh, according to the, the writer of Kings. Now we know from Ecclesiastes that there was recovery, but it was probably right at the end of his life and it didn't have a major uh, major impact. Now, that brings us up to the end of chapter 11. What I had wanted to do next, but we are out of time, is to do a quick, spend about 15 or 20 minutes with a summary of these 11 chapters. We'll start with that next time as we transition into the next section of First Kings. Just a reminder of the chart that I put up here at the beginning. The first 11 chapters cover the reign of Solomon. First Kings 12 to Second Kings 17 cover the middle period, which is the divided kingdom. And then Second uh, Kings 18 to 25, we have the single kingdom at the end. And we'll get into the rest of the details of this chart next time. But this is where the major transition occurs going from chapter 11 to chapter 12. I have another chart that I handed out uh, when we started that I have revised. That's what happens. You start off with a book. You uh, outline it, think this is what's going on here. As you go through the details, uh, things, you get more opportunity to study it. And so you go back and revise it. And so we'll have that posted uh, eventually on the Internet with the revised charts. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that we're held accountable uh, before your throne just as Solomon was and that uh, the issue in our life is our devotion, our dedication, our loyalty to you. And even though we are disobedient, our sins were all paid for by Christ on the cross and there's forgiveness because of what he did and then 1 John 1, 9 enables us to pick up and move on. And as long as we're still alive, we can still press on and serve you in this life with ramifications for eternity. Pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.